You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, what is up today, family? I pray that you are doing well today. Before we get started, I just want to take a second to say thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, during this season, especially when every time you, you log on to the computer on Sunday morning, there's like a buffet of church services. Uh, we are deeply grateful that you chose to be with us, all right? Humbled and just want to say thank you. If this is your first time, if you're new with us, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. Uh, Refuge is a church plant in Southeast Austin uh, that strives to be a regional church with a community impact, meaning we welcome everyone into our church, yet we mobilize to have a local impact in our communities. Uh, And so if you want some more information about us, I encourage you to jump in the video description, hit that connect link, uh, send us some info. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, Hey, so today we're going to be going into our sermon series in Acts, but I do have a couple of announcements that I want to share before we jump into that, okay? The first one being that as our amazing uh, community, uh, you know, director said, uh, Jermaine, shout out, bro, for doing the announcements. Um, We are having a digital meetup today at two o'clock, today. And so you still have time to get involved. Uh, Man, we're going to be sending out the link through our newsletter. If you're not signed up for that, go to our website, refugeaustin.com, and sign up for the newsletter at the bottom of the page. We'll be sending out the information uh, at 1230 uh, so that everyone has the the time to get ready. If you have plans today, I highly, highly encourage you to change them bad boys, bro. Change those bad boys and get with us. We would love to see you, especially if you're new, man. Like, you don't have to send the connection joint. Just connect with us. We'd love to meet you. Love to share some time with you and hang out with you. Uh, the other quick announcement is, uh, is that I pray you guys have enjoyed our sermon series in Acts, a movement for the modern world. Uh, but like all great things, it has to come to an end. And so we are actually just going to be in Acts for the next three weeks, uh, including today. So that means after today, there will only be two weeks left. Uh, from there, we're going to be uh, doing a couple of standalone sermons before we jump into our next sermon series that we're going to be announcing in just a couple of weeks. Um, man, I, I want to encourage you to get excited about that. Uh, I'm really excited about this next sermon series and what the Lord is going to do in our lives through it. Uh, but man, savor these next few weeks. We'll come back to Acts later in the future. Uh, but right now we're going to transition to some other things uh, and then put it back on the schedule. Uh, man, maybe later this year or next year. But yeah, so wanted to mention that to you. But for today, we are going to be continuing our sermon series in Acts. We're going to work through Acts chapter 8, the first three verses of Acts chapter 8. Actually, that was wrong. The first eight verses of Acts chapter 8. Uh, last week, uh, we worked through Stephen's amazing sermon where he really invited us to take a look at our stories. Ultimately, I, I think really inviting us through inviting the religious leaders to rethink our stories and to note the amazing grace and mercy of God present in our stories and their stories and see the beauty beauty of his grace in that. Now, at the end, Stephen showed us that he wasn't just talking the talk, man. He was walking the walk. All right. He faced his greatest moment of hardship, his own death, and clung to that grace, clung to the beauty of Christ at work in his life as he uh, gave his soul and Christ received his spirit in his death. Um, This week, we're actually going to be seeing kind of what happens in the aftermath of that stoning. Okay. we're going to see some real tragic things start, but, but we're also going to see uh, this amazing undercurrent taking place, right? On, on the surface, there's going to be one thing happening, but, but under the current, there's also going to be this other thing happening, 
right? There's going to be this, this, this will of God that's taking place that's happening underneath and maybe above and beyond what's happening on the surface here. Uh, and it kind of reminded me, actually, of the movie Onward, if you haven't seen that. It's a Disney movie. If you have kids, I'm sure you've seen it. If you don't have kids, you, spoiler alert, cover your ears. Um, man, in Onward, there's this young man or elf or whatever he is. Uh, and in the movie, he, he's longing for this father figure. He lost his dad at a young age, and he's in high school, and he's longing for that, that fatherly comfort. And during the movie, you think he's, gonna, you think he's actually going to get to meet his dad, when at the end of the movie, he actually finds out he's had that father figure the whole time in his older brother, right? And you could see it happening through the movie, but you don't really see it until the end, and you're like, wow. Um, man, similar to that, here we're going to see something happening on the top surface. But underneath, we're going to see that this, this theme that's actually taking place of God's will working through these situations, right? As Genesis 50, 20 said, when, when, uh, when, when other people are planning things for evil, but God is planning and using those same things for good, we're going to see that really hashed out here. And, and I think it's going to be beautiful. Uh, man, we're going to see this change in story. It's going to start with Stephen's death and the persecution of the church, but yet it's going to turn into something powerful, something that, that's building momentum, that, that's creating something awesome in the church. And today's sermon, though, today's sermon is entitled Faith-Driven Acceptance, because similar to Onward, um, similar to a lot of our lives, I mean, what, what Acts, I think, is going to show us today is that oftentimes it takes this deep sense of faith to accept God's will in our lives. It takes a deep sense of faith to accept God's will and what he's doing, rather than becoming angry, rather than doubting, to accept it. But when we accept it through faith, it also brings us joy. Okay, as we accept God's will through faith, it also brings us hope. So, man, I'm excited to dive in to help us grab onto this idea of faith uh, driven acceptance. We're going to look at three aspects of God's will that really require our faith. Okay, almost three reasons that, that accepting God's will requires faith, if you want to put it like that. The first one is that God's will is different from our will. Okay, God's will is different than our will. The second is that God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. And the third is that God's vision is greater than our vision. As we work through these three reasons, it's my hope that, that in and of themselves, they will kind of move us toward faith in God. Uh, and his will at work in our lives. But I want to go ahead and jump in and get started for the sake of time. We're going to be again in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be working through here the first three verses as we get started. Uh, Starting from verse 1, it reads like this. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. If you're just now joining us in this series, you're kind of getting thrown in uh, to chapter 8 here in this really heartbreaking and crazy story. Uh, As we mentioned, Stephen, a newly selected leader uh, in the church for the Greek-speaking Jews, is stoned. And as a result, uh, man, this, this, this issue arises. There's a widespread persecution of Christians. As we read, they're getting, uh, man, like, like dragged out of their homes, put into prison. It's a very hostile environment. And as a result, the church has scattered, right? The, the, the majority of the congregation has scattered and left Jerusalem. 
Now, this is obviously heartbreaking, obviously, obviously discouraging, but when we, when we kind of put ourselves into the story, not just reading it from our perspective, but put ourselves into the story, there's even bigger issues at hand as well. If you're a part of the Messiah movement, right, the Jesus movement, the Messiah's mission of redemption, and you're a first century Jew here in Jerusalem, there's still very much a part of you that believes your mission is to restore uh, power and influence to the nation of Israel. And if you're going to restore power and influence to the nation of Israel, there's one place that you're going to start, in Jerusalem. That's where you're going to start. But how can Jesus' followers reclaim Jerusalem if all of Jesus' followers are leaving and scattering Jerusalem, right? Like, like that, that, that's hard to do. So in one moment when we read, the reality that we're looking at is that the church has seemingly lost a lot of momentum Okay, the church has uh, lost a huge part of its congregation, lost one of its brightest leaders, and lost its foothold in the most critical region in the area. When we go back to the very beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, where this wild adventure started, I think there's something that can be of use to us there. In Acts 1, when Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples, he says something, gives sort of a roadmap before entering heaven that might sound really familiar right now. Okay, let's read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So according to that text, the disciples are to be witnesses about Jesus in Jerusalem, absolutely, but also in Judea and Samaria. That sounds familiar, though, because look here. In verse 1 of chapter 8, okay, it says, if you hear sirens, that's the police going by, all right, that's okay, pray for them in Jesus' name. Um, in chapter 8 of, in chapter 1 of verse, <laughs> in chapter 8 verse 1, it says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So in this wild turn around, roundabout kind of way, the disciples are actually right where they need to be. It hasn't been the most peaceful road there. It's been difficult to get there. They've gone through tragedy. They've gone through heartache. They've gone through hardship, but they are actually right where they need to be. How can that be? How can it be that they've gone through all this hardship and heartache, but they're also right where they need to be, and both are true at the exact same time? Well, it's rooted in the reality that God's will is different than our will. Where, our very, where Jesus' very human followers uh, believed that restoring the kingdom of Israel was the way Jesus wanted to restore the kingdom of God, Jesus knew that he wanted to, to actually establish God's kingdom in the hearts of people, not just in Jerusalem, but beyond. When, when his very human disciples, very human followers believed that focusing on the Jews in Jerusalem was going to be the people that God focused on the most, meant God knew that he wanted to build a kingdom uh, whose subjects were from every race, every background, every language, right? Uh, you see, humanity, no matter if you are a first century Jew or a modern day American, if you are a, a follower of Jesus or not, all of us have these well-intentioned desires, Okay, well-intentioned desires that we often confuse with God's will. We can see the good in our ideas. We can see uh, what seems or even is 
a godly characteristic in our desires, how we think it should go. And we start to believe that must be God's will. If it seems so right to me, that must be God's will. Yet the reality is, the reality is, is that the majority of the time, we're not going to know God's will. God's will will be different uh, than our will, no matter how well-intentioned our desires seem to be. And again, I don't mean just unbelievers. I mean all of us. All of us will develop these well-intentioned desires, yet have a fundamentally different views and a fundamentally different will than God. And there's nothing evil about that in and of itself. Uh, to simply have a different view uh, or a different desire or, 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 or a different will than God in and of itself is not sinful, is not evil. But we have to be careful, okay? We have to be careful in that. And the thing is, we have to be careful not to confuse God's will and our comfort. I'm going to say that again because I really want you to hear it. We, as followers of Jesus, who are trying to understand his will and often can, can confuse our well-intentioned desires for his will, we have to be careful not to also confuse God's will with our comfort. When we do that, when we start to believe our desires uh, and kind of marry them to our convenience, our comfort, and then believe that is God's will, one of two things always happens. One, either we live in a constant fear that every moment of discomfort is actually a sign that we're out of God's will, or two, we believe that every moment of discomfort is a moment God's will is wrong. Okay, and neither of those is true. There will be moments where God's will is inconvenient to us. There will be moments where, where those two things conflict. In those moments, friends, we have to remember that our felt need isn't our fundamental need. I'm going to say that again. Our felt need is not always our fundamental need. When we confuse our comfort and God's will, or even elevate our comfort above God's will, we begin to prioritize our felt need over our fundamental needs. We begin to believe that our financial security, our, our careers, our jobs, our relationships, our spouse, our family, uh, man, our health, anything else, all the things that you can imagine, all the things that you value and cling to, your status, your influence, the, the church you go to, uh, the clothes you wear, whatever it is for you, I have my own, you're gonna have your own. We begin to prioritize these things over uh, the most important things in our lives, and when those aren't intact, we begin to doubt God's character and to doubt the goodness of God's will. But while we're worried about our felt needs, God is worried about our fundamental needs. He's worried about the most important things. He's worried about our heart. He's worried about the condition of our soul. He's worried about whether we are trusting, relying on him, or if we're relying on ourselves. In other words, God's glory is not in our convenience. God's glory is in our godliness. It's in our dependence, our reliance. That's where God's glory is seen. God's glory is not always seen when I'm, when I'm in the nicest of everything that I own, when I'm in the absolute best situations and circumstances on earth. God's glory is most seen when I am, I am delighting, when I am loving, when I am relying, depending, trusting him, regardless of the circumstances that I am in. I think about my kids, and, and as children, if you have kids, you know that they prioritize felt needs over fundamental needs, like all day. 
Like that's like the primary thing they do. And if you're a part of our community group, which, which I know a few of you are, then you know uh, that men uh, from those wailing, ring wraith demonic screams going on uh, every here and there, that my daughter is having a real serious uh, hard time with her bedtime right now. Right, We try to put her to bed at a reasonable hour. She stays up later than most kids, but every time we do, she begins to kind of like freak out and, and like start crying and start yelling because she wants to do something, quote unquote, more fun. She wants to read a book or get a snack or run around or watch TV or just really do anything besides going to bed. But, but what she doesn't know is that me and her mom, we have her best desire at heart. We want her not just to get a good night's rest, but we want her to continue to develop well. Right, We know that developmentally, sleep is not just required, but it's critical. If she's not sleeping, she won't develop, and we want what's best for her moving forward. While she's focused on her felt need, she doesn't realize that we as her parents are caring for her, and not just her felt need, but caring for her fundamental needs, her more core needs. Similarly, God is a good father. God is a good father. He knows what we need most, not just what we need now. Okay, and because of that, he, his will and our will aren't always going to be the same. Okay, and this kind of leads into our, our second reason of why, why uh, accepting God's will requires faith. Because, uh, man, in, in addition to, to, to God's will being different than our will, it, it's different than our will largely because God's ways are higher than our ways. Okay, one of the major reasons accepting God's will requires faith is because his ways are higher than our ways. When the disciples were in Jerusalem, okay, they probably didn't realize that Jesus' kingdom looked far different than the one they were imagining. Why? Because Jesus' ways were far higher than their ways. Okay, like in fact, I would even say the reason that our wills are different, ours versus God's, 99.99999, in fact, scratch that, just 100% of the time, is because his ways are higher than our ways. There's never been a moment where, where our wills came into conflict, and it was like, I think my will might have a bit of the, the edge, the moral edge in the decision. 100% of the time, when it's different, it's because his ways are higher than our ways. Okay, they're, they're higher, but higher, one of the things I wrote here is that higher is almost like too light of a word, though. It's not just that they're higher in the sense that we can like intellectually ascend to those thoughts. We can just learn enough. We can meditate enough. We can be enlightened enough. There's something more going on here. Okay, think about a text like Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, where Isaiah says that God declares to him, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you see that? There's something really subtle, but, but really important that we need to realize here. God's thoughts aren't just different than our thoughts. Okay? They're not even just more informed than our thoughts. They're so fundamentally different that the way he compares them is that one is like earth and one is like heaven. And that means that they're completely, completely different. Okay, it's easy for us to imagine that heaven and earth are almost like a two-story house, right? And the bottom is earth and the top is heaven. And downstairs in earth is a little bit messier, but upstairs is a little cleaner. All we have to really do is start working our way upstairs and then we can get to that perspective, like a heavenly perspective on things. But, but man, that's not really the way scripture describes it. Scripture kind of doesn't all have such an easy 
uh, I think, paint such a simple picture about heaven and earth. They're, they're completely different things. It's not like, like you can just jump over to one or the other. It, it, it's that they are completely different things. They're, they're separated. That's what makes the Garden of Eden in the beginning of the Bible so beautiful because it is this place where, where heaven and earth are almost overlapping as God interacts with Adam and Eve. But heaven isn't somewhere we can go from earth, right? If you haven't noticed, like NASA isn't making flights. Uh, it isn't kind of making rockets to get to heaven. That's not anything that's going on. Um, and like Heaven is so completely different than earth. So God's thoughts are so completely different than our thoughts. They're completely different. It's not a two-story house. It's like that we're in different planets, and one's in a mansion and, and one's not. <laughs> it's for this reason that accepting God's will requires faith, because accepting God's will isn't about understanding his actions. It's about understanding his character. God's will isn't about under, accepting God's will isn't about understanding his logic. It's about believing in his wisdom. Okay, it, it, when we fail to acknowledge that God's ways are higher than our ways, we're incapable of acknowledging that God's will is higher than our will. We're, we're incapable of acknowledging that when, when his will conflicts with our will, right, we're incapable of going, okay, then my will concedes to your will and your will is right. And if we're not able to do that, then we're not ever able to tap into accepting that, man, this higher way who's creating a different will and path for my life than my ways and my will is creating, man, that other way, that other will, that other uh, um, plan there is beautiful, is, is great. I, I can accept it. I, I can, it's impossible to do that. In order to accept God's will, we have to believe that his ways are higher than our ways. And this really, again, plays into to, to what's happening with our third point. Because if we're going to accept God's will by faith, we have to really accept that his ways are higher than our ways. But if we accept that God's ways are higher than, his, than, than our ways, one of the things that we're also accepting all right, consequently, is that his plan, his vision, where he sees our lives going is also greater than where I see my life going. It's greater than where you see your life going. If his ways are greater and his will is different, then his vision and his direction and his plan for your life is also greater than what yours is. And that's what takes us into our third reason why accepting God's will requires faith. And that's because God's vision is greater than our vision. I'm really excited about this one, that God's vision is greater than our vision. Let's read the rest of today's text. Uh, it's going to be verses 4 through 8 in chapter 8 to finish up. It goes like this, verse 4. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. When the church scatters, Acts tells us that Philip, another, um, another leader in the church for the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, is sent, he, he heads into Samaria, okay? And he starts to preach the word. Not just the word, but he's specifically preaching about Jesus. He's preaching about the Messiah. 
And an amazing thing happens. Okay, a number of people come to faith. People are getting cured and healed. People are being set free from, from years of, of bondage, demonic bondage. Uh, it, it's an amazing scene. And, and it's a needed encouragement to the last couple of things that we read, which was like persecution, stonings, people getting thrown in jail. It, it's, it's a welcomed, a welcomed encouragement. But if you're a first century Jew reading this, it's also a little unsettling, okay? It's also a little bit unsettling and maybe even a little bit hard to accept because if you're familiar with the Bible, specifically the New Testament, then you know that there is this big rift between Samaritans and Jews, okay? A deep dislike and mistrust for each other that went back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You see, Samaritans were originally a part of the tribes of Israel back in the Old Testament times. And when the kingdom of Israel was split into northern and southern half, the, the, the Samaritans were originally a part of the northern half, the, the known as Israel. But eventually they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And during that time, the Assyrian Empire invited various people groups to resettle in that area. Consequently, as a result, there was a lot of intermarriage, uh, and, and really the Samaritans lost their uh, kind of quote-unquote pure Jewish heritage. And after this, the Samaritans were never accepted again. They were never accepted back into the community. In fact, they weren't even allowed to worship in uh, the temple in Jerusalem anymore. Uh, and because of that, they ended up building their own temple on a mountain in their own land, where the city of Samaria would eventually be founded. Uh, and years later, after the, the, the Jewish exile, if you know about that, if you don't, feel free to Google it or email me. But after the Jewish exile, when they came back, there were some efforts to try to reunite the two groups, but, but the damage had already been done. Samaritans hated Jews, and Jews hated Samaritans. Uh, that's just the way it was. But that's why something like John chapter 4 is all the more powerful. If you're familiar, in John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. In, in the story, even the Samaritan woman's surprised. She's like, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan woman. Right? So even she's a little startled that this Jewish rabbi, this Jewish guy is talking to her. And in verse 20, she says something really poignant that points back to the history we just talked about. In verse 20, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And at this point, any other Jewish religious leader, any other rabbi, would have very easily responded, that's absolutely right. The correct place to worship is in Jerusalem. You guys do have it wrong. You need to come over there. In fact, but you can't come over there. You guys aren't allowed because of your heritage, X, Y, and Z. But Jesus isn't any regular rabbi or religious leader. Okay, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And so Jesus' will is different than our will. And Jesus' ways are higher than our ways. And Jesus' vision for the future is higher and greater than our vision for the future. Jesus' vision for this woman's life was greater than her vision for her life. And that's why he responds in verse 21 of chapter 4, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Could you imagine how it must have felt to be that woman that day? Could you imagine what it must have felt to live in this sense, in this deep place of division and hatred for your entire life just to have this Jesus, this Messiah, this prophet look at you and say, one day there won't be this gap anymore. One day we're going to worship God together and we're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. One day you're going to worship him and it's going to be acknowledged. It's going to be seen and it's going to be savored and it's going to glorify God. And he's going to rejoice at your rejoicing. Could you imagine that feeling after, after your whole life being told that you weren't worshiping correctly? Imagine how it must have felt. I, I likewise can't help but wonder if that same Samaritan woman was there when Philip walked into Samaria that day. I, I can't help but wonder if she heard that people were getting healed in the middle of the street. I I can't help but wonder if she heard that people were getting freed from oppression and from demonic uh, torture. I I can't help but wonder if she heard that there was somebody, if maybe even she saw Philip declaring the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus calling people to be saved, calling people to repent and to believe, to be accepted into God's family, to begin to live in a unity with one another, Jew, Samaritan, and anything else, coming to worship in the God, worship God in spirit and in truth, together in true unity, all under the name and the work of this Jesus. I wonder if she was there. I wonder if she was there. Friends, oftentimes it requires faith to accept God's will, because what God sees in our lives, what God sees in your life, what God sees in my life is oftentimes so much greater than what you and I can see for our own lives. And no, I'm not trying to to like prosperity gospel you. That's far from the truth. I'm not saying that that your view of a high paying job is, is too little and God's view of a high paying job is much more. I'm not saying that. The reality is God may not put us into those positions. Okay, but what I am saying is that it takes faith to accept that God to accept God's will because he wants to anchor your hope in something far greater than a job or anything else. He wants to anchor your hope in himself. He wants to anchor our joy in himself. He wants to anchor our our, our joy, our hope, our peace in things that are not removable and not take, easily taken away, but rather things that are unmovable, rather things that are unshakable. He wants to anchor your hope in the promises of his resurrection and the life that he, we have in him. My friends, we may suffer in this life, but he promises that there will be a day when there's no more tears, when he wipes tears away, when there's no more sickness, man, when there's no more disease, when he is with us and he is our God and we are his people. He wants to anchor our hope now, not just in the future. Man, he wants to anchor our hope right now in himself. That's how we live in his will. Do you want to know how we we accept his will? What kind of faith it requires to to accept God's will? It requires accepting who God is and what he desires for us. 
the joy he desires for us to have, the hope he desires for us to have it, the, the, the faith required to, to accept that God's will is different and to accept that his ways are higher and to accept that his vision is greater is simply to look at him and accept that he loves you. That, that's the hardest part. That's oftentimes the most challenging part. But that's how we live in his will, by resting in his promises more than we wrestle with our own insecurities. So some of us might be thinking to ourselves, like, man, that's beautiful, but, but I still feel a, a, sense of, a sense of heaviness, wondering if, if this is for me. But, but I want to assure you, man, if you are a, a follower of Jesus, this is absolutely for you. We can have faith that, that you know, God's will is different than ours. We can have faith uh, that his ways are higher and that his vision is greater um, man, and it can actually bring us joy and hope. Uh, the reason for this, I, I believe, is rooted in this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where at the, near the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul, um, man, he discusses the difference in a saved and an unsaved person and how the saved person understands the things of God and how the unsaved person doesn't understand the things of God. And the difference there is not that one is smarter than the other or that one is more um, equipped than the other. Rather, the only thing that separates the two in his estimation, being inspired by God's spirit, is actually God's spirit. That, that when the believer comes to faith, that believer is given the very same spirit that was at work in Christ when Christ himself walked the earth. And therefore has the ability to see things the way Christ saw them and the way Christ sees them. You see, Christ perfectly accepted that God's will, God's will in the garden when he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Christ perfectly accepted God's ways are higher than his ways. When he, he very publicly declared, none is good except God. He perfectly saw God's vision when he told the Samaritan woman, man, there's going to be day, a day when we worship together. You, friend, if you are following Jesus, whether you acknowledge it, experience it or not, or not experience it, but whether you acknowledge it or feel it or not, man, you have been given the same spirit that is at work in Christ himself, the same life that is in Christ himself. As Paul puts it, you have the mind of Christ. You have it. You have access to the hope that must have filled the Samaritan woman's heart when she saw the miracles taking place all across Samaria through Philip. You have that same, that same, the same hope that must have filled Philip's heart when he saw the multitudes in Samaria coming to faith. Man, you have access to that same hope because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Friends, it's going to take faith. It's going to take faith. But we have, again, we have access to faith. You have access to faith. I have access to faith. The work of Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins has now given us access to the faith we need to trust God and accept his will. If you are a follower of Jesus, the question is not whether... Um, if you can, or, or, or if you can or cannot muster up that faith, the question is, is will you muster up that faith? Because will, will you accept the gift that Jesus has given us in himself to say, I'm here, come to me. Let, let me build your faith. You really don't build your faith. I, I build your faith. And so in that, will you, will you bring your doubt to Jesus and, and ask him in sincerity to, to turn it into 
faith? Will you bring your anger to Jesus and and have him turn it into joy? Will you bring your hopelessness to Jesus and, and allow him to turn it into hope? Will you hear his promises and respond with, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief? It's going to be uncomfortable at times. Man, my brothers, my sisters, it's going to be uncomfortable times. There's going to be moments where God's will is for you to confess sin to a brother or sister that you never thought you would say out loud about yourself in faith that God's grace is sufficient for you in that moment. There's going to be moments where we have to do something like wake up a little bit earlier than usual in order to pursue the scriptures in faith that God is storing up his word in our heart so that we don't sin against them. There will be moments it's inconvenient, but what I want you to know is that it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Seeking him, giving our heart, offering the faith that we have to him and and inviting him to create more faith in order to stir a humble uh, faith-driven acceptance of his will that ensures us that he is different than us, that his ways are higher than us, but that his vision for our life is greater than ours. And therefore, we can have hope for a future that is better than the one that we can see. Even though it may be different, we can have faith that, man, that is the one that I need. That is one that my soul craves. All my soul needs is not to find a different circumstance, but to find a different savior, not to place my faith in, in, in all the things that I'm placing my faith in, but rather to go find the Savior in his fullness and let him give my soul peace and rest. And so as we close, this week's application is really that, to do something uncomfortable, uh, do something that builds faith. My hope is that as a church, we'll be marked with people that live outside of our comfort zone, that live outside of our um, sense of convenience, I should say, uh, in order to serve people and allow them to see the love and faithfulness of God as well. So I want you to think about a way to to kind of put you in a position that builds faith, right? That allows the Lord to build faith in us. Maybe for you it looks like going to a CG. Maybe it looks like serving at Rodriguez. Maybe it looks like confessing sin to a friend. Uh, Maybe it even looks like giving financially uh, to the church in a way that you have never done before. But my encouragement is to do something that moves you into a place where faith is at work, where we're actively inviting Christ in to cultivate and build that faith in us and give us hope in his promises, the promises of who he is, and therefore giving us assurance of his will at work in our lives. Hey, um, I love you. I love you uh, a ton. I want to go ahead and pray, and then I want to send us to one more moment of worship and come back and close up. So, uh, Father, thank you so much for your grace at work in our lives that, that brings us to the place of confidence and assurance that your character is greater than our character, your ways greater than our ways, your thoughts than our thoughts, and therefore we can place our trust and hope in you. Uh, Father, I ask that you would help us, that you would bless us in our efforts to do that, and from there, God, that you would really cultivate a deep sense of, of faith-driven acceptance of, of what you're doing in our lives and allow us to really come alongside you and know, man, I'm going to partner with God in what he's doing in my life to see him glorified, to see my soul cultivated in faith and reliance and dependence on him and to invite others into that same beauty. And so we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 